Oh, Lord, use your servants' lips, your people's ears and hearts, that they may be wed, that the seed of your word might be planted and brought forth with a resurrection joy. In the name of Jesus Christ, our Savior, we pray. Amen and amen. Today we are talking about a living faith, a living faith as opposed to a faith that is barely hanging on, a living faith as opposed to one that is lifeless and dead. Today we are talking about a living faith as this blueprint for the Christian life that James offers us as we continue and carry on with that. James is a very practical book. He just flat out tells you what to do in some cases. And in other cases, when he doesn't flat out tell you what to do, he at least gives us a paradigm. A paradigm for how we can and we may look at the world. A paradigm for how we can and we may have a vibrant, living faith. And so we have a situation in the church that James is talking to, and that situation is this alternate reality that we find in the world and that we find in the church. We find that the world pushes us and wants us to behave in certain ways, wants us to think in certain ways, and we find that the conviction that God has entered the world in Jesus of Nazareth takes us to a place the world would not have us go. In the world, there is power and there are riches and and resources that make all the difference between who is important and who is not. And in the church, there are those, as Jesus says, who come as little children. Those who enter into the kingdom of heaven as little children and as the poor and the needy. And so we have this contrast. And James is concerned that the church might mirror the world in ways that are incompatible with Christianity. James is concerned that the church might wind up finding the same things important that the world finds. James is concerned that the church might become a microcosm of the world at large. Now, we don't really know why the book of James was written. It could have been written as a word of caution against a situation that just might take place and reminding people not to let this particular uh, kind of thing happen. But I think it's more likely, especially given the use that James uses, that he's received a report about a church that's just made him mad. He doesn't like what he's heard. He doesn't appreciate what he's heard. And so it's a written response to something that he has heard that has happened in the church. And you can hear the passion in his voice. As he says, my brothers and sisters, do you with your acts of favoritism really believe in our glorious Lord Jesus Christ? Do you really believe in our glorious Lord Jesus Christ? 
Now, there are a lot of ways that we as a culture, as a society, uh, we define glory. In one of those ways is, you know, somebody that's got so much money they don't know what to do with it. They can throw it away. They can, you know, this, is, this is the kind of person we walk up to in church holding an offering plate. This is the kind of glory that we see in the world as major figures that you read about in the newspaper and in the magazines just spent billions upon billions of dollars. And then we have the glory that comes from being a child of God. In theological language, we, we call it the imago Dei, the image of God. Genesis 1.27, in the image of God, God created humanity. Male and female, he created them. We might be able to recognize or identify in ourselves a tendency to value this kind of person more than this kind of person. We might notice a, a value in our hearts for people who are educated like us, people who think like us, people who speak like us. And yet, there is no such thing as an ordinary person. The person who serves you at lunch today, your, your server, is not an ordinary person. The image of God might be blurred. The image of God might be marred. The image of God might be hidden. But every one of us, created by God, in some way bears that imago di day bears that image of God and so the real question when James is asking do you really believe in our glorious Lord Jesus Christ is whose glory we celebrate when we come to worship whose glory we focus upon as we worship do we focus upon the glory of those around us the word glory, we sang the doxology before I walked down the aisle. Doxa, doxology, it's the root word there, the glorifying of Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. We can glorify others and we can see those whose jewels or whose dress and appearance we, we like and enjoy or we can focus on Jesus Christ crucified, risen, and coming again. And we can gather together in this place for the single purpose and focus of glorifying our Lord. James is addressing a theological problem. That theological problem is what path we're going to take. What is the way that we are going to conduct ourselves in our lives? What are we going to choose to be? Who are we going to choose to serve? What is going to be the focus of who we are? There's a Christian path. There's a path of faith. And James notes the foundation of this path when he says, you do well if you really fulfill the royal law according to the Scripture. What is the royal law according to the scripture? You shall love your neighbor as yourself. 
Now, you probably recognize that James didn't come up with this. Jesus didn't come up with this either. I know you all love it when I go to Leviticus. Let's go back to Leviticus. Leviticus says, You shall not take vengeance or bear a grudge against any of your people, but you shall love your neighbor as yourself. I am the Lord. We could talk about that for a long time. In, in the Old Testament, we've got the ceremonial law, the ceremonies, the ways of worship of ancient Israel. We've also got the moral law, that which is right and wrong. And for example, the Ten Commandments are no less binding on Christians than they are on the Jewish people of 1000 B.C. The ceremonial law is not a Christian law. Which is why if you go out to eat with one of your Jewish friends, you might eat shellfish, but she won't. You might order pork chops, but she won't. The ceremonial law is not a law that Christians follow. It's the way of worship of the people of ancient Israel that has been interpreted continually to our present day. But the moral law, that which is right and that which is wrong, is something that has continued to be consistent through time. This is a part of the moral law. You shall not take vengeance or bear a grudge. Oh my goodness, I hate to hear that. I went to Franklin, Kentucky yesterday where I preached a funeral of an 89-year-old woman who, who died in a way that I think was absolutely beautiful. She was living in, a, in an assisted care facility. She sang karaoke, went to bed with a smile on her face, and never woke up the next morning. At this funeral, though, a person started coming toward me, and I've got to admit, I'm a preacher. I'm sorry to admit that as a preacher, this person had done something to me and to my family like 12 years ago. And you'd think I would know that holding a grudge is not exactly the answer. And I hadn't thought about this thing for a long, long time, but you better believe when I saw her moving toward me, I remembered the grudge. And I'm thinking, oh God, let me not do something or say something embarrassing. And thanks be to God, I didn't do anything or say anything embarrassing, and not only that, but God put enough love and grace in my heart to really connect with this person. I wish I could say the grudge was gone, but it's not as strong today as it was yesterday. And I hope a week from now, I, I will have cleverly set it aside. Not cleverly. I hope I will have set it aside because of God's grace at work in my heart. But it's amazing how all these years later, it can come back, it can come back. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. Those of you who are parents or teachers, have no doubt told somebody, do this or don't do that, only to hear why. Why not? Because I'm your dad. Because I'm in charge of this place. Because I'm the teacher. Because that's what they pay me to do is to make you behave. 
I love the way it shows up here in Leviticus. Don't take vengeance. Don't hold a grudge. Love your neighbor as yourself. Why? I am the Lord. I made you. I'm present with you. It's a commandment that I give you. So Leviticus has this same text that James uses. It's not just Leviticus. It's on the lips of Jesus when Jesus is asked, what is the most important commandment? And he says, love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your mind, with all your strength. But it's not just about that vertical relationship between us and God. It's also about the horizontal relationships between us and other people. The second great commandment is like the first one. You can't separate them. It's like heads and tails on a coin. You shall love your neighbor as yourself from the lips of Jesus. Paul goes on to say we can stay out of a whole lot of trouble if we get this right. The commandments, you shall not commit adultery, you shall not murder, you shall not steal, you shall not covet, and any other commandment, is summed up in this word. Love your neighbor as yourself. If you love your neighbor as yourself, you're not going to commit adultery with the spouse of someone you love. You're not going to steal something from someone you love. I remember my first smartphone. It was a Blackberry. And I loved my first smartphone because for the first time I could get a whole bunch of stuff out of my head and onto something that would keep up with things for me. And I was at church one Sunday, I'm sorry, it was a Wednesday night, and someone stole my Blackberry. Now, I think I would have been even less annoyed if they had stolen it and wanted to do something with it, but they just stole it out of pure meanness. They went into the women's restroom and flushed my Blackberry down the toilet. One thing I didn't notice was that we started having plumbing problems at the same time my Blackberry got stolen. Things didn't happen very quickly, you know, committee after committee after committee. And finally, a year and three months later, we've been trying to get this toilet unclogged for over a year now. Let's get somebody in here and do it. And so a plumber came in, and the plumber did everything he knew to do, and he finally just replaced the toilet. And then he said, would you mind if I took a sledgehammer and broke this into pieces? Because I have got to know what's in there. I've tried everything I know to get it out. He hit it and he broke it and there was my Blackberry. But nobody who loved me would have stolen from me. If you love your neighbor as yourself, you've got the the basis, you've got the foundation, You've, you've got what will keep you in right relationship with other people. And folks, it's like this house of cards. When, when James says if you, if you break one part of the law, you're, you're a lawbreaker, well, he's focusing on this law, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. And if you take that out from the foundation, then the whole ethical system comes crashing down. 
the whole structure of the Christian life becomes unintelligible apart from loving our neighbors as we love ourselves. Back to James. You do well if you really fulfill the royal law according to Scripture. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. But if you show partiality, you commit sin and are convicted by the law as transgressors. For whoever keeps the whole law but fails in one point has become accountable for all of it. For James, the difference between a living faith and a dead faith is the practical living out of this commandment to love your neighbor as yourself. And so we get to a point in James where we're talking about the difference between a living faith and a dead faith. Those of you who, like me, love the princess bride, the princess bride, if you haven't seen it, you should see it. It's one of the greatest movies of all time. But poor Wesley, poor Wesley is mostly dead. He's not all dead. But he's mostly dead, and he goes to Miracle Max, who finds enough to bring the mostly dead back to life. Where are you in your faith? Is your faith a living faith? Is your faith mostly dead, somewhat alive? What good is it, my brothers and sisters, if you say you have faith, but do not have works? And then... James starts meddling. He talks about the practical realities of what it means to have a living faith. If a brother or sister is naked and lacks daily food, and one of you says to them, go in peace, keep warm, eat your fill, and yet you do not supply their bodily needs, what's the good of that? So faith by itself if it has no works, is dead. So we have the choice. Will our faith be a dead faith or will our faith be a living faith? Will we be the kind of people who reflect the values of the world or will we be the kind of people who follow the path of Jesus? We have a choice. What faith do we have? How do we have a living faith? Well, first of all, you've got to make the commitment. The commitment is the commitment to walking the path of Jesus, living the life that Jesus brings into our hearts. If you are not a Christian and want to be, call me and have me take you out to lunch or coffee, and we'll pray together, and we'll bring you into the fold. If you've worried your whole life that you might not be a Christian, you kind of think you are, you believe in Christ, but you've been going to church ever since you were like nine days old, and, and you're just not quite sure the coffee option is open to you as well. But make the commitment. The commitment to live the faith, to walk the path, to walk in intimate communion with Jesus. Make the commitment and be ready I don't know what it means for you to be ready. At one point in my life, what it meant for me to be ready was to have a section in my wallet 
where I kept money that I did not know I was going to get, kind of like faith promise, and I labeled it God's money. I'd put a post-it note on it that said God's money. And sometimes it would stay in my wallet for 30 minutes, and sometimes it would stay in my wallet for 45 days. But inevitably, there would come a point at which I knew that it was the right time to take what was there and put it to use. Now, that's what I want to get on with this, with this third topic because there's only one Savior of the world, and that is Jesus crucified, risen, and coming again. We are not the saviors of the world. We are in partnership with God to do what we can, but we can't always do what we wish we could. My favorite American city, New Orleans, had a chance to go there recently, and my goodness, looking at the photographs and seeing they've been without power for a week just absolutely breaks my heart. But on a good day in New Orleans, you can walk down Canal Street and you can be accosted by 20 homeless people. And that's just Canal Street. You turn left, go into the French Quarter, and more homeless people everywhere. And you can't do for, for everybody everything you want to do. Kentucky is number one in child abuse, neglect. In the United States. We've got more child abuse and neglect uh, in, in Kentucky than, than any other place. And, and you and I as individuals are not going to be able to solve that problem. But you all know the story of the beach covered with starfish that in the sunlight are drying out. And walking along the beach is a lonely, solitary figure who picks up a starfish and tosses him into the sea, who picks up another one and tosses it into the sea. And the pessimist comes up and the pessimist says, you're not making a bit of a difference. The guy picks up a starfish and throws him into the sea. And he said, I made a difference for that one. And he picks up another one, tosses it into the ocean. I made a difference for that one too. You're not going to be able to make a difference for every homeless person that you encounter in New Orleans. But you can be so in touch with God that your heart turns and grows warm when you know that God is calling you to do something in a specific place. You're not going to be able to solve on your own the problem of abuse and neglect of children in Kentucky, but you may be able to become a foster parent and make a difference in the life of one or two. You're not going to be able to comfort everyone and, and give everyone the kind of love that you hope that you can, but you can, you can be so in touch with God that in your morning prayers you can pray with pen and paper in hand and when God brings an image of someone who is hurting to your mind you can count that as a sign to reach out. Stay in touch with God. And go into the world with a living faith. Go into the world with a faith that is ready to move when God says move.
A faith that is ready to speak when God says speak. A faith that is ready to forgive when the old grudge from 12 years ago pops up again. A faith that isn't just talk, but a faith that is action. Which choice will you make? What faith will you have? Will you love God with all your heart and love your neighbor as yourself and in so doing participate in God's redemptive work in the world? Or will you just live on autopilot? May God bring you alive to life And may the nourishment we receive at this table today give us strength to love God and to love our neighbors as ourselves. Let us pray.